shall we see each other as Muslim, Christian, Jew, as sister or as brother, or as a privileged few? If there's but one creator, creator of us all, no one's a dominator before whom others fall. Is there a human birthright? Is there a human race? Is there a human birthplight that's seen in every face? What of each human skin hue? White, yellow, red, black, brown. Does it show what's within you? Should it evoke a frown? We humans have a history that shatters all belief. And it remains a mystery why we act like a thief. We rob and steal and plunder the people of our world. And then we stand in wonder when hatred is unfurled. Can we be as created, be as we're meant to be, with prejudice abated, one earthly family? Can we respect our neighbor of different culture, creed, and for each other labor? Can we speak of humankind, one people of the earth? People not of single mind, yet bound by human birth. Can we find a way to say, by love I'll live and Day, my actions it will prove. It's time we learned in living that all on earth are blessed with inner strength for giving, a gift not oft assessed. We must share with each other the love that's in our soul, how tragic love to smother, for love makes humans Hello 
folks, we are Solutions of Balance. We're happy you can join us. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions of Balance is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's Solutions of Balance program is a recording of a virtual Third Thursday Lunch event. The Third Thursday Lunch event is being sponsored by the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation and Source of Justice. The Third Thursday Lunch event will take place before a virtual Zoom audience participants. The co-host for Solutions of Balance is Jamie McMillan and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The keynote speaker for today's Third Thursday Lunch event is Ibrahim Iman. Carl Rattan will welcome our Zoom audience and our radio audience. Good afternoon, everyone. So nice to have you here. My name is Carl Rattan. I am the co-chair of Sowers of Justice, and we, along with the FOR, Fellowship of Reconciliation, sponsor these Third Thursday Lunch Forums. So we're glad to see you. Both the Sowers of Justice and the Fellowship of Reconciliation are faith-based organizations. So we will now hear from Jim Johnson. Hi, folks. I'm Jim Johnson from WFMP's Solution Developed Radio Program. Beverly Marmion will introduce our keynote speaker, Ibrahim Iman. Hello, everybody. When the Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice realized last winter that we could put our toe into the pool of Zoom and resume our third Thursday lunches by way of a screen rather than sharing fried chicken at Hotel Louisville, we realized that we were at a critical moment in our local and national story of social justice and injustice and that we needed to meet Louisville's moment as well as the nation's moment in terms of looking very squarely and deeply into social injustice in our community and our country. And so that is why our programs have featured across last spring and this fall speakers about the needs of our African-American and Native American immigrant communities in terms of justice and what we needed to know in order to begin to repair damage and lead us all to a brighter future. So you may ask, why is Palestine fitting into this picture? But it truly belongs here because of all the foreign policy issues which the United States government is involved in, the issue of Palestine and Israel are as much domestic issues as they are foreign. Ever since 1917, when the movement of the victors of the First World War began to plot to change the order of desire for democracy and self-government in the Middle East and sought to thwart it by means of the mandate session, mandate awarding by the League of Nations, the United States has been involved. For the British, in hopes of adding more weight to their desire to be part of the mandate's system for specifically Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq, persuaded President Woodrow Wilson to say that he would approve of such an issue. They thought by that means of American support, they could plead their case more strongly with the League of Nations, and so that came to be. Most of us know the story of United States involvement with Israel and the Palestinians beginning in 1948 when President Truman recognized the state of Israel, the first country to do so within the newly formed 
formed United Nations. But from that time on, the United States government, its Congress, its media, many of its religious bodies have told a very positive story of Jewish immigration to Israel, the founding of the state of Israel, and the continuing strengthening of the state of Israel, and leaving out the story of the plight of the Palestinians, their departure by means of Israeli forces driving them from their homes and land, the desires of the Zionist forces of the new Jewish state to portray the Palestinians as having no history, no culture in the land of Palestine, which was so quickly being overrun by the Israelis and which today is becomes even more and more the case. Rightly or wrongly, willingly or unwillingly, every American citizen, simply by virtue of citizenship, is involved in this conflict. And we need to know more about it than we've been allowed to be told. So that is why Palestine is is on our agenda for today. That's why we have our well-loved friend and fellow activist in social justice causes in Louisville, Dr. Ibrahim Imam, to speak to us about the current situation there. Dr. Imam, ever since bringing his family to Louisville when he joined the faculty of the Speed School in the mid-80s, has been not only speaking about the plight, the needs, the situation of his people, but also he has joined as an active and committed member our peace and justice-seeking community here in Louisville. So we are so delighted to welcome him here again to our platform of Third Thursday Lunches. And with that, I'll give the screen over to him. Beverly, thank you very much. I, I, I do appreciate this introduction and uh, I'm very glad to be here. I hope everybody can hear me well. If you're not able to hear me, please let me know in the chat or, you know, raise your hand. When I asked to participate again in the third third luncheon, I have to admit I was really excited. I missed being uh, able to see the group. I missed the Rudyard Kipling uh, restaurant and I missed that setup and I was very glad. To, to, to participate in this. The, the biggest question was, is what should I really talk about and what is really hot, what's very important at, uh, you know, nowadays. And after thinking about this for probably a couple of nights, I've decided that I'm going to try to bring together three things that are actually very important and they all add up to what's really going on now in uh, Palestine and in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah in particular. A couple of things that are very important that people are not aware of is that the majority of Palestinians up to like the 18th, 19th century, late 1800, early 1900, a good number of Jerusalemites were living actually in the old city, including, for instance, my own, you know, my own family, my own parents. And when things, you know, got tight, population expansion, Palestinians started moving outside the old city and the walls of the old city. One of the places that they actually settled, and uh, by statistic, in 1905, Five, there were about 150 some families that were actually took residence and established homes in a, a little suburb of uh, Jerusalem, a little bit northeast of uh, Damascus Gate. It is known as Sheikh Jarrah. It's uh, almost like a tiny little hill. And the old Jerusalemites moved from the old Jerusalem city and took dwellings in those areas. And of course, in 1948, many Palestinians got displayed due to the, you know, colonial occupation of, uh, you know, the Zionist Israeli who took over part of, you know, in May 1948, part of the land. And many of those were actually displaced from what we call now the 1948 land. And they ended up in refugee camps like my parents, or some of them, you know, took residence due to work 
in other Arabic countries. There were few, some that that were not, you know, uh, did not end up in refugee camps or in other Arabic countries. The United Nations refugee and work, UNRWA for short, built some houses in Sheikh Jarrah and gave those houses to some of the Palestinian families, like the Kurd family and Sabah family, who were actually lost their family, uh, their land in 1948, and they were basically homeless, and they were given dwellings in Sheikh Jarrah. And that, uh, in 1956, the, uh, that ownership was supposed to be transferred and, you know, confirmed by the Jordanian government, who was administering the West Bank after the 1948 war. The other fact that people are not aware of is that in 1948, after the creation of the State of Israel, Israel established what they call the absentee law. And the absentee law says that any land, any property that is not claimed by Palestinians, its original owners, will revert to the State of Israel, become part of the land fund, and it will be basically part of Israel. And Palestinians or the actual owners of that land will lose the right and the land will actually get confiscated. In 1967, when Israel took over and occupied the rest of Palestine, including East Jerusalem, soon after that, it was 1970, I believe, that they've established a law that actually says that any Israeli Jew who lost land that was in the West Bank, such as Sheikh Jarrah, have the right to claim it and re recapture, reown it, and basically evict whoever lives in there. A settler groups decided that they claimed that they owned those properties in Sheikh Jarrah. They owned land in Sheikh Jarrah, and that those Palestinian families are living on the land that was actually or ancestrally belonged to them. And they started this campaign of harassing and trying to evict those Palestinian families of Sheikh Jarrah. What's very interesting here, and you see that the, the, the differences between the two laws, which is really just another indication that the state of Israel is not a, a nation that actually practices democracy and treats its citizenship in equal manners. If you are an Arab and you lost land in 1948 and that land was given to a Jewish family, which is the case, then you do not have the right to claim that land back. But if you are a Jewish Israeli who can claim that they've lost land that at one time was occupied or you know owned by the Israeli and now it is you know inhabited by Palestinians, the Israeli Jew has the right to evict the Palestinians out of that property and take it over. So you can see that this absentee law versus the 1970 law really create these two different standards. One applies for Jewish Israelis that gives them the right to basically claim any piece of land. However, Palestinians cannot reclaim land that they actually have lost in 1948, though they both are citizens of the same country. That is what started this Sheikh Jarrah situation that we've been hearing about especially in May, in, you know, this past May during Ramadan, which I will, you know, briefly talk about too in a minute. There is another factor that we, we kind of seem to lose track of, which is till probably and through Oslo, the Israeli government, and they kind of declared or they claimed that they believe and they are willing to accept a principle known as land for peace. And this principle, land for peace, is really the basis for the Oslo Accord. 
and the idea behind it is through land swaps, we will be able to achieve two states, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state. The Palestinian state is within the 1967 borders, and the Israeli state will be what we currently now know as, you know, Israel. That was pretty much the, the situation of the conflict till the uh, early years of Bush Jr. And that's when the neocons, in reality, took over the foreign policy of this country. And I'm talking about Richard Pearl, I'm talking about Fife, I'm talking about Wolfowitz, I'm talking about all these people that we know that were actually very instrumental in pushing us in the Iraq war. Richard Pearl was one of the advisors to Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, Richard Pearl convinced Netanyahu that Israel does not need to stick to this land for peace philosophy, and under no circumstances would Israel lose support of the United States. And that was a very major turning point because at that time, basically from that period on, Israel abandoned this philosophy of land for peace and it became much more expansionist as a state. And it really did let loose of settlers and their activities throughout the West Bank and throughout East Jerusalem. And that is one of the factors that actually led to Sheikh Jarrah. There is another important factor that actually took place that encouraged Israel in its expansionist policy is the amazing support that Israel received through the years from Palestine, uh, from U.S. presidents and the U.S. Congress and the U.S. politicians and the U.S. foreign policy. But actually that even materialized much more, believe it or not, during the Obama's years. Bush Sr. was very firm in his beliefs and his, you know, attachment to the foreign policy of this country. Bush, the son, was less due to the influence of the, the neocons that basically were controlling the situation. But though President Obama on the surface appeared to be determined to try to establish and try to have a two-state solution, and he did give his speech next to Netanyahu by saying that he really would like to see us go to the 242338 resolution and the United Nations and the, you know, uh, 1967 borders. But in reality, he really did not take any definite firm actions that actually will curtail the expansionist policy of the state of Israel. And there were several attempts in the United Nations, because starting from the late 70s, the majority of the world, except for the United States, were able to and started seeing Israel as a colonial power that is actually oppressing a population, a civilian population, namely the Palestinians. And they were starting to see the parallels that exist between regimes such as South Africa, apartheid, and what's happening. And they knew that this is going to lead to it. And in 1976, they tried in the United Nations to actually establish, you know, a resolution that will try to curtail the Israeli expansionist policy. And the United States actually vetoed that. In 2011, the U.S. vetoed another resolution that could have actually curtailed such expansionist policy and helped. And Barack Obama refused to actually allow for that, and the, the United States vetoed that resolution. So you can see that as a result of all of this, Israel, as a colonial power, got emboldened. And one of the tools that actually it uses in this emboldenment is actually the settlers 
and the zealots and the right-wing extremists that are actually more in control of the policy in Israel now than any other than any other group. Sheikh Jarrah was only a demonstration, was only one example. Those settlers started harassing and attempted through courts and through trying to take over the houses, tried to evict the Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah and from their houses in Sheikh Jarrah. To everybody's surprise, the Palestinians started resisting and clashes between the settlers and the Palestinian dwellers of those homes started becoming more public and escalated. A lot of that stuff happened during the month of Ramadan this past April and May. And actually it started escalating late in March and it led to clashes between the settlers and the Palestinian civilian inhabitants of that. And to the point that it actually made the news in you know some news agencies and many of us saw that settler from the states who basically told the Palestinian family that if I don't steal your land, somebody else will come and steal it, so I might as well be the one who's going to steal it from. And in open admission, he was talking about stealing the land. He knew very well that the act that he was taking. And we've seen, we've seen it on YouTube, we've seen it in news agencies, it's all over the place. And that led to the escalation, and that led to the resistance of Palestinians to the settlers' movements trying to evict those Palestinians. This escalated a lot more during the month of Ramadan. The Palestinians started gathering in Sheikh Jarrah, having what they call iftar, which is basically breaking the fast, and out in public, and many of their supporters from Jerusalem started coming and joining them. A very right-wing group started campaigning or demonstrating across the street, started throwing stones at each other, started throwing, you know, uh, bottles and things like that. And that escalated into a, a physical conflict. Of course, the Israeli police and the Israeli army job is to protect those settlers. So they came, arrested a few Palestinians. They did what is known, uh, they have a practice called skunking. And what they do is they go and they spray that area with a chemical, which is very much exactly like what you would smell when a skunk gets run by a car. They sprayed the houses, they sprayed the street, they sprayed the shops and stuff like that, just so that basically they'll make the Palestinian life, you know, miserable. And that actually started taking place. It was early in uh, in May during the month of Ramadan. The clashes between the Palestinians defending themselves from the settler expanded to Damascus Gate and expanded to the areas around Al-Haram al-Sharif. And Israel built electronic and iron gates to try to control the Palestinians, the Muslim Palestinians, from going to Al-Haram al-Sharif for the Ramadan prayers and worshipping during Ramadan. That actually was met with fierce resistance from Palestinians, which really took Israelis by surprise. And this, the Palestinians were so powerful to the point that Israel had to actually dismantle the structure that they put in there and had to allow Palestinian Jerusalemites to go into Al-Haram al-Sharif to pray. But what they were trying to do is to, you know, this galvanized the Palestinians. So Palestinians what we call the 1948 Arabs, Palestinian citizens of Israel and other 
cities started coming and they were going to come into Jerusalem for prayers. What Israel did uh, is try to block those and they put barriers and barricades on highways and states that actually trying to prevent Palestine, 48 Palestinians, 48 Arabs from coming to Jerusalem. Well, this backfired because Jerusalemites, Arab Jerusalemites discovered what's going on. So what they did is they started moving, going to those barricades, waiting for Palestinians to walk across the Israeli barricades and take them and bring them into Jerusalem to the point that there were 90,000 Palestinians praying in Al-Haram al-Sharif that night. All this for whatever, you know, due to astronomy or calendars or Mother Nature or whatever it is, two things coincided at the same time. A night in towards the end of Ramadan, the 27th night of Ramadan, is known in Arabic as Laylat al-Qadr, or it's the night of flame. It's a night in which, you know, Muslims stay up all night praying, expecting a miracle to happen. And that coincided with what Israel celebrates as Jerusalem Day, which is a day in which they celebrate the quote-unquote the unification of East Jerusalem with West Jerusalem after the 1967 war. The right-wing Israeli groups were trying to arrange for a march that actually will march celebrating the unification day and march into Al-Haram al-Sharif and march what they call, of course, the Temple Mount. Israel convinced them that they should not do that and that it was, you know, they managed to reroute they, or they tried to reroute and they rerouted the march. And of course, the march took place and, uh, you know, they were shouting death to Arabs, death, death to Palestinians and all that stuff. And this led to more clashes in, uh, on Al-Haram al-Sharif and in Damascus Gate. And that was a fierce clash that resulted basically in Israel, of course, um, uh, started realizing this, that uh, this is a what they would consider national security issue. It was an alarming situation, and of course, by their brutality increased against the Palestinians and the resistant, the resisting Palestinians, and that actually led to what we have seen in the news. Now, the other thing that happened, which Israel was not expecting, is you know, is a solidarity between Palestinians in other city like Akka, Elud, many other cities that the Palestinians, these are Palestinian Arab cities inside Israel, they, in solidarity with the Palestinians, started resisting and starting a, a form of uh, resistance to actually obstructionists, very similar to the things that we did in the past, such as, you know, sit-ins or, you know, faxing or calling and things like that. But that was very surprising because it actually showed the world that Palestinians still are Palestinians, regardless, you know, whether they live under the Israeli occupation, whether they live in Jerusalem or whether they live in Lud and, you know, Haifa and Yafa and all these occupied, you know, cities. And the other thing that actually it galvanized support for Palestinians outside Palestine, Israel, and it actually in Arabic countries that even in some of them that were actually uh, started exchanging, normalizing relations with Israel, such as some of the Arabic Gulf countries that I will talk about, about in a minute. But that was basically, and that's when the same thing happened again, which is, you know, Hamas 
and the Palestinians in Gaza in solidarity with their other Palestinian family, relatives, friends. They start, they fired rockets from Gaza on the southern part of Israel. And that led to this final attack on, on Gaza. And people forget, and I have them listed in here, the number of times in which Israel attacked Gaza lately. There was an attack in 2006, 2008 and 9. That's when Barack Obama became president. 2012, 2014 and 2021. And those attacks are not basically just incursions over borders. Those attacks, and we all know, end up destroying basically half of the inhabited parts of Gaza as a strip, the whole, the whole strip. But these clashes proved to the world that Palestinians are still a, a nation that is still willing and desires to fight for its existence, its self-governance, its independence, its autonomy, and its rightful right to its own ownership of its own land. And that they have not lost the support of the rest of the world, except, unfortunately, for the United States. And the rest of the world has basically, is now more open to what they see and what they recognize. There is a very, you know, small glimmer of hope in the United States that actually you can notice and witness is that the narrative is beginning to change a little bit among the public. Some of the news agencies for the first time in, 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 in God knows how many years since the creation of the state of Israel, at least are beginning to mention the name Palestine, are, are willing to actually talk to a Palestinian, are willing to interview a Palestinian, and a little bit more openly than they did in the past. There is another factor that's happening that's very alarming to the state of Israel too, and it's creating a rift between American Jews and the state of Israel, is a lot of the young Americans, young Democrats, and a lot of the young Jews are actually more aware of what's going on there than the young Israelis themselves, who actually live in some kind of a blackout. They get on a high-speed highway from a settlement near Jerusalem or Tulkarem or whatever it is in 30 minutes. They are in the middle of Tel Aviv. They go to their work in Tel Aviv in the afternoon or 5 o'clock or whatever. They get in their car 20 minutes later. They are back in the settlement, and they think that due to the infrastructure that Israel is building, that we have supported, they believe that everything is quiet and peaceful, and they do not really realize what's going on. And they are oblivious to it, either by choice or by the fact that it is not actually publicized. But all these factors, yes, they give us some kind of hope. But unfortunately, on the other hand, they make the Israeli government and the Israeli settlers more stubborn, more hateful, more cruel. And the Israeli government even gets crueler and more cruel day by day. Uh, I'll give you a very simple example. A young man, 27 years old, his name is Ahmed Arakat. It's from the same Arakat family as the negotiator side of Arakat. He was shot in the back for no reason, five bullets by the Israeli police. His body, his corpse, is still in a freezer. Israel is refusing to give his body. The Supreme Court of Israel justified and legalized for the Israeli army to hold on to that Ahmed Arafat's body so that it can be exchanged in the future 
for Israeli prisoners or for Israeli bodies. This shows you the extent to which the cruelty has actually reached by the Israeli government. And the Israeli settlers are emboldened more than ever. They are disrupting Palestinians, harvesting their olives, stealing, burning their equipment, their resources, trying to prevent them from actually earning a living. And all of this is, do is done under the watchful eye of the Israeli government, the Israeli army, and the Israeli police. And this is getting to the point where for every action, there is a reaction. And the crueler those settlers and the crueler the Israeli government gets to be, the more resentful and the more stubborn and the more determined the Palestinians are, uh, become. Another important factor that actually this Jerusalem, what we call the Jerusalem uprising or the third uprising or whatever you want to call it, now, is, is sending very dangerous signals which are important and they are good signals to the current Palestinian authority, which basically people now look at as an extension of the Israeli army and the Israeli su suppression of Palestinians. And a new leadership, a young leadership, a more organic type of leadership, not through the rank and file of the PLO or you know the other you know older organization, but the, the, the a new leadership that is appearing within the young Palestinians, whether it's in 1948 and in the occupied East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, everywhere. And that is alarming to, to the Palestinian Authority. But in reality, that's a silver lining for what's happening right now, because the Palestinian leadership, as it stands right now, is very well aware of the fact that its role has ended. It doesn't have the trust of the people. Everybody regards it as a corrupt extension, an arm of the Israeli occupation. The assassination of Nizar Banat from Hebron was another factor that actually made that more clear. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Nizar Banat was a, a, a gentleman from Hebron who through uh, social media was uh, shedding some light on the behavior of the Palestinian Authority. And he, is a, he was a vocal critic of their practices and he was assassinated by the Palestinian Authority. The irony is that some of the people who criticized the Palestinian Authority for its action and the assassination of Nizar Banat, two days later got arrested by the Israeli Authority and they are now, two or three of them, I know, are now actually in Israeli prisons. What added more to the cruelty of the treatment of Palestinians is the escape attempt of those five Palestinian prisoners who probably very well knew that they're going to be recaptured again anyway. They knew probably they had nowhere else to go. But that actually proved again that this mighty, powerful Israeli war machine and Israeli suppression can be opposed and it can be defeated if, it's, if it is fought properly. And this is the direction that actually is, you know, in which Palestinian resistance is actually moving. In 1967, there was this feeling in the Arab world and among Palestinians that the Israeli war machinery is undefeatable. And 
the superiority, the military superiority, superiority of Israel as an occupation and as a fourth army of the world and stuff like that was a fact that many Palestinians were, you know, at that time they were willing to accept. But after the first uprising, then the second uprising, then the third uprising, Palestinians and the world is beginning to realize that, you know, might, might last for a while, but ultimately things will change. And ultimately, you know, the light will shine and justice will prevail. And, uh, you know, history teaches us that this is the case again and again. The only obstacle now that's really standing between achieving a, a just solution for the Palestinians is actually the United States. The United States currently is the only power in the world that supports Israel. And what the last straw was actually, you know, the presidency of Trump that actually made the situation much more dangerous. The move of the embassy to, from, uh, to Jerusalem absolutely positively was not the right move. It's a very short-sighted move, even for those who really care about the safety and the security of the state of Israel, quote-unquote. They realized that this was a blunder that ultimately, you know, there will be a price to be paid. Generations from now, maybe, but that will not. And this very last uh, uprising and the solidarity with the Palestinians throughout the world, which we don't see much and doesn't get reported on, is actually is another is, is another factor. When will the United States uh, change its foreign policy? Ultimately, if uh, the young generation sees more and understands what's going on, and they do the right thing, things you know we might you know force our policymakers to change. There are cracks. You're beginning to see this. What? People know as the, I believe the, I forget the name they call them, uh, Elhan Omar, uh, AOC, Libby, Rashida. Oh, you know, I mean, the dialogue has begun. You know, the, the the discussion did get started, maybe a very very slow pace, and maybe, it's, but you know, it, it's happening. So so a lot a lot has has changed since May, since Ramadan, since the Sheikh Jarrah has started. It did change. The way the world looks at Palestinians, the way the, the, the world is beginning to see Israel as a colonial, oppressive, apartheid state, and a dialogue is beginning to slowly show its head, whether it's in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy or uh, among the U.S. population. And a lot of the young people are beginning to examine these facts and look at things differently and, you know, I kind of lose track of time. I think we have got like maybe 15 minutes or something like that. And I haven't been being, you know, keeping up with the chat, to be honest with you, it's kind of hard for me to do that. But uh, if it's appropriate, I can I can open it for a question. It's up to the moderator to decide what you, you know, if there is anything in particular you want me to elaborate on, I'll be more than happy to. Uh, somebody is trying to say something, but I cannot Thank hear. Thank you, Ibrahim, for your, for your very helpful analysis. Thank you very much. We do have one You're question proud. from Carla Wallace. She is with um, Showing Up for Racial Justice, and she <clears> says, <throat> Thank you for your analysis of the resistance of Palestinians to the colonial presence and brutality of U.S.-backed Israel. 
Could you speak to why we believe that Zionism is a form of racism? And she also adds that uh, showing up for racial justice is an anti-occupation, is, is anti-occupation and supports a free Palestine. So can you give, tell us about the link between Zionism and racism? Yeah. Zionism is a, a short definition. Zionism is, is really is a political movement that was you know, established by Theodore Herzl, uh, calling for the establishment of a national home for Jews. Uh, the Zionist movement chose Palestine to be that national uh, home, and they, through uh, you know, uh, moving into Palestine under the protection of the uh, British mandate, established the Ergun, the Haganah, Stern, all these uh, you know terrorist organizations that morphed into the current Israeli arm, uh, current Israeli army, and uh, they established a state on land that does not belong to them by brutal force and brutal occupation and massacres not different from their scene which was you know uh, its uh, memory was a couple of days ago what happened is uh, the palestinian resistance and uh, and the world learning from uh, south africa and the struggle that south africa as an apart state went through and the effectiveness of what we did as in boycott and sanctions against the South African regime led to the dismantling of apartheid in, in South Africa. And those who do not learn from history, you know, tend to repeat uh, whatever mistakes. Uh, and um, the Palestinian resistance and the world, you know, uh, supporters of the, you know, Palestinian justice and rights realize that Israel is an apartheid state. Doesn't matter what, how you try to hide it, Israel is an apartheid state. And they've, you know, a form of resistance is the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement in parallel to what we've done against South Africa. It proves to be effective. It proves to be painful. Uh, it's, it's academic boycott, it's literature boycott, it's product boycotts, and it's very targeted to products and things that are actually built or produced on occupied Palestinian land as per the Geneva Convention by, by, the, by the Hague Accord. So in, in order to defeat this, uh, anti-Semitism after Hitler and Auschwitz and what happened, what took place in Europe, uh, anti-Semitism became very clear to the world that it's a dangerous thing it's like any other kind of segregation, any other kind of uh, discrimination. And anti-Semitism anti, anti became, unfortunately, a label that Israeli supporters and Israeli lackeys will use to discredit and smear anybody who tries to criticize the state of Israel. To the extent that there are states in this country that trying to criminalize BDS, trying to criminalize any criticism of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And this, this is unprecedented. This is something totally was never heard of. But due to the effectiveness of 
the anti-Semitism label, it lost its value, it lost its meaning, and it's being used now to basically smear anybody who, whether they are truly anti-Semitic or not, that's not the point. It's beginning to, to be used to smear anybody who is criticizing the state of Israel. Some true anti-Semites slide under the radar. So what I am, I'm, I'm hearing an echo, so apparently there is a, Either on my end or uh, what I said, I just reheard. <laughs> but this, David, did you mute? Yeah, good. Okay, all right. So what? What? What really? Uh, uh, you know, to go back to anti-Semitism, uh, anti the true anti-Semites slide under the radar. I'll give you a very simple example, which is which is very alarming too. Evangelical Christians who believe in Armageddon and who believe in the book of Revelation. They believe and they support the state of Israel so that one of these days, the second Messiah will come. And those Jews who do not accept the second coming, who do not accept Jesus Christ, are gonna, be, are gonna end up being obliterated. And they are the biggest supporters of the state of Israel simply because it meets, it satisfies their need and their belief. If there is anybody who is truly anti-Semite, is that them or is it me who sits here and talks to you about what's happening, about the facts on the ground, about how Israel is treating Palestinians? By their definition, by equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, what they are really telling us all right now is I, I am an anti-Semite simply because I'm criticizing the state of Israel. Not only it violates our right to speak free speech and First Amendment, but yeah. it, it attaches a smear that's totally unjustified. I am more of a Semite myself than those who claim that I am an anti-Semite. The same people who, who, whose faith tells them about the story of Abraham and his sons and Isaac and Hajar and all that, you know, they do know very well that if what they believe in is true we're talking about the same people but they still you know they use that as a smear and as a label to discredit valid true criticism and resistance against an occupation and the human rights abuses of palestinians under occupation and everywhere else i think there was i'm not sure if there was another uh, yes, there's a question, Dr. Imam. You mentioned Arab Jerusalemites, and you didn't you not didn't use the word Palestinian Jerusalemites. And the question, I think, as to why that would be. No, no, the, the, they are Palestinians. Uh, the uh, the Arabs, what the Arabs who live in Israel now, what we call the 1948 Arabs, are Palestinians. The Jerusalemites. Are, are Palestinians. The people in the West Bank and Gaza are Palestinians. I'm just trying to talk about a geographic. The, the Palestinian, the Jerusalemites, I was talking about people in the 18 and 1900 when the small, the, the, the old city, which is a very small uh, city, became very crowded and the population, the Palestinian population grew. And many Palestinian families moved outside the old city and they basically built 
and bought house uh, land and built houses outside the old city and they lived in jerusalem because of the 1967 uh, because of the 1948 war unfortunately jerusalem was divided the what is known as east jerusalem was remained till 1967 under the administration of jordan and then what is known as west jerusalem the, the western half of jerusalem was under the israeli occupation and in 1967, Israel took over the whole thing and annexed East Jerusalem. And the naming, I, I, you know, what's so funny is I never heard of the word East Jerusalem in my life before till, till I came to the United States and I went to a talk at uh, UK and Omer, the brother of the mayor who was mayor of Israel, referred to is every time people ask me where I was from, I would say Jerusalem. I never thought of East Jerusalem West Jerusalem. It was a terminology that the Israelis used because of the fact that Jerusalem was divided and half of it, the East Jerusalem was with the Arabs. So the Jerusalemites that left inside the old city of Jerusalem and took residence in Sheikh Jarrah, Shafat, Beit Hanina, all these places are actually Palestinians. Thank you. We can receive other questions if you want to um, raise a question, or if you uh, you can raise your hand if you want. We'll look for raised hands, or you can put it in the chat. Beverly, I want to be able to close our program, and I want to be able to quote from the FOR USA statement on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. All of you have, with the invitation to this. Uh, program a link to the statement and you are urged to read it. Uh, so if you haven't read it, I hope you do, but I'm going to quote from it because it was issued in May of this year at the end of the Jerusalem uprising, which Dr. Imam has, has described to us so vividly when the eyes of the world were, were brought sharply to what was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, between Israeli forces and the Palestinian civilians of the West Bank and, and within Israel proper. And it so after stating the background to what has been going on for such a long time in Palestine and Israel, it closes with and a catalog of all the things that have taken place at the United Nations over the last 73 years in terms of resolutions proposed and resolutions defeated or obstructed. It says, nonetheless, in cities across the United States and in countries around the world, people are demonstrating in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Millions are chanting peacefully, and they did this in Louisville, free, free Palestine and Palestine lives matter. In the US Congress, efforts are underway to block the $735 million in arms sales, which was proposed earlier in the year. Uh, we call upon the United Nations to hear and respond to this global call and struggle against racist regimes. We implore the UN Security Council to take accountability and respond immediately and appropriately by imposing sanctions on Israel. FOR USA calls upon the United Nations Security Council 
to implement international laws and covenants multilaterally, to convene an urgent session to demand a ceasefire, to implement sanctions on the pariah state and stop its impunity. As the late great civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The time has come for the United Nations to restore and exercise its moral authority, to prevent further escalation of violence, to institute the rule of law, and to implement one single yardstick of international justice." End quote. Now, I must respond in terms of announcements as well, because in November, wait just a minute, let me pick up my calendar. There are two really important events. First of all, uh, our next um, third Thursday lunch on Thursday, November the 18th, four weeks from today, when our speaker will be Dr. Ricky Jones, who's the head of the Pan American Studies Department at the University of Louisville, and he will be talking about racial and Native American issues in terms of the education of our young people in in the schools uh, of at least public school and beyond, which are in question here now in the state of Kentucky. And another important announcement and one that is a breaking news story really, on Tuesday, November the 16th at the University of Louisville about five o'clock in the afternoon, I do not know the exact place yet, but it will be posted on our website, an outstanding American scholar at Columbia University whose family is Palestinian. His name is Dr. Rashi Khalidi, and he is long been, along with Dr. Ibrahim Imam, a spokesman for his person, for their history, for their present situation. He is now uh, a professor at the Columbia University in New York City. Uh, the Mideast Department of History. He is going to be speaking at U of L. Three years ago, he, he has published a number of books on the subject of Palestinians. He is the most recently, his book is 100 Years of War Against the Palestinians, 1917 to 2017. He is right on top of his topic. It is exciting and thrilling to know that he's gonna be here, that we can hear him in person, that we can ask him questions in person. And so I leave you with that announcement for, for Tuesday the 16th of November is, as well. Beverly, it is, it's at six o'clock, it's, it's available in Zoom, David sent the link, and it is for those who wanna attend it the, uh, at the Chow Auditorium. Wow, the Chow Auditorium, auditorium in, in the Ekstrom and, Library at U of L. Yes, and it is it is the official sponsors are the Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies in, in Arts and Sciences at the University of Louisville Department, at our, you know, here in, in the University of Louisville. And uh, I'm hoping, and I think that it will be endorsed by many other organizations, local organizations that support the Palestinian codes and we, Count we us work, in. Work, <laughs> we, we, we're working on that we're working okay on that. it's, it's that's really news thank you so much so thank you all well, I hope I see you on the 16th of November as well as make reservations for our 18th of November program with Dr. Ricky Jones so 
Bye-bye for now. Till next month. Thank you. Thanks for so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Folks, we're out of time. We want to thank our guest today, Dr. Ibrahim Iman, for his participation in today's Solutions of Violence presentation. And we want to thank the Lowell Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice for sponsoring today's third Thursday lunch event. We also want to thank our listeners for joining us. Solutions of Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated October 25th and 26th. The Solutions of Violence program featuring Dr. Ibrahim Iman and the October 3rd Thursday lunch event will be placed in our archives October 26th. To listen to via our archives, visit us at boardradio.org, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions of Violence program that features Dr. Ibrahim Iman and the third Thursday lunch. If you would like to share your views about our discussion with Dr. Iman, you can reach us with the following email, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm John Johnson. Uh, my co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening. Red, black, brown, does it show what's within you? Should it evoke a frown? We humans have a history that shatters all belief. And it remains a mystery why we act like a thief. We rob and steal and plunder the people of our world. And then we stand in wonder when hatred is unfurled. Can we be as created, be as we're meant to be, with prejudice abated, one earthly family? Can we respect our neighbor of different culture, creed, and for each other labor? Can we speak of humankind?